a Black executive perspective. Whether you're aware of it or not, it's a topic that is often avoided. We'll discuss race and how it plays a factor and how we didn't even talk about this topic because we were afraid. I realized, you know, I had this moment in Jersey City. This is going to make me emotional when it really, really hit me that I had to be a part of the solution. It was raining and there was a black gentleman and me and we were running toward the PATH train in Jersey City and we both had dark colored hoodies and we wanted to avoid the rain by getting onto the train as quickly as we could. We both kind of flipped up our hoodies and we're both like running toward the entrance of the train. And a cop stopped the young black man and I got on the train. And I had that moment where I thought, this is it. This is white privilege. I'm not going to be late for work. And that young man is simply because he's black. Welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast, a safe space where we discuss all matters related to race, especially race in corporate America. I'm your host, Tony Tidbit. Let me ask you a question. Have you ever said to somebody, a friend of yours, I'm not a racist. I can't be a racist. You know what? I've heard people say that. I've said it. I'm not a racist. I'm a black guy. How can I be a racist? Right? Matter of fact, my best friend, he's Italian, so I can't be a racist. I give to the police union every year. I'm not a racist, right? So one of the things we hear that a lot, we all say it, but do we really understand what does it mean not to be a racist? More importantly, do we know what anti-racism is? Do we understand that? Today, I have a good friend of mine, Renee Santos, who's going to talk about the distinction between being not a racist and anti-racism. So we can all learn from it. So I'm so excited to have Renee on the show to talk more about this from her experience and hear her story. Renee Santos is a professional stand-up comedian and writer who has done a plethora of shows on television as well as in the theater. Currently, she's expanded her portfolio to writing a solo show and doing freelance journalism to expand her creative portfolio and also helping to elevate every artist's voice. Renee Santos, welcome to a Black Executive Perspective podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm absolutely honored to be here. I'm excited. I mean, well, number one, I haven't seen you in a long time, you know, and for the audience to know, Renee and I go back a while, her and her sister, her sister and I used to work together. And she became family, and then I met Renee, and we've been one happy family ever since. So it's finally good to see you. So tell us a little bit real quickly, where are you from? Where are you living at? What's going on? Well, I'm originally from Massachusetts. Um, I now live in Los Angeles. I lived in New York City with my sister, whom we know together, um, uh, from 2015 to 2020. But now I'm West Coast bound. It's 74 degrees here. There's a reason I'm here. <laughs> <laughs> it's November 9th, right? Or November, whatever, 6th. Um, but yeah, so I'm, uh, I, I have always chosen to live in pretty diverse liberal states and communities. So I've, I've, I've been a little bit of my own proverbial echo chamber myself, but uh, I do my best to expand my horizons by having these conversations. So I'm super excited to be here. And um, yeah, yeah. That's awesome. That's awesome. So 
Massachusetts now out in you know the California area. Mm-hmm. You have great weather right now, so things are going good. Um, and obviously, you know, you're in the um, you're in the industry, so there's things going on and stuff to that nature that hopefully, you know, you can get back and to do the things that you you know that I've seen you do. I enjoyed seeing you do as well. Yeah, definitely. I, I appreciate you mentioning that. You know, the, the good thing about being a multi-hyphenate artist is I'm I'm I, I'm a writer and a journalist and 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 a performer and an actor, but uh, both the both performance unions were on strike. And so that I had to shift the work that I was able to do, but I'm very grateful because I sort of run this eclectic gamut of artistic pursuits. I'm able to fill in the gaps uh, quite well. So I'm grateful. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Hey, that's, that's part of being a multidimensional person, right? Is being able to deal with diversity and then be able to find other ways to move past it and still stay positive and still continue to, to make things happen here in the world. So really excited that you're here. Let me ask you this, Um, you know, and you're going to tell us a lot more about you and anti-racism and and being a racist, but you know, where are you now? Are you, you're American. You're tell us a little bit about your racial background. Sure. Um, My mother is of Cuban descent. Her family is from Havana and uh, my father is Portuguese. He was born in the Azores, the islands off the coast of Portugal. Um, You know, it's an interesting distinction, I think, between um, identity and actual race, because I didn't find out that I was Cuban until I was 16. So I predominantly grew up with this identity that I was white, and I didn't even realize I was Latina till later. I'm also a non-Spanish speaking Latina, and that's a whole nother thing to unpack about the definition of racially being being able to identify as Latina if you don't speak the language, because in a lot of other cultures, the, you know, if you're Korean and you're adopted by a white family, you still get credit for being Korean, right? You know, so there's that whole dialogue. So for a long time, I didn't really know how to even articulate that, that question, you know, or answer that question. What am I? But, um, yeah, so I'm half Latina, half European. Um, my parents have a, a very strong defense around race versus identity too. And I think uh, that is sort of systemic in not only our culture, but how I was inadvertently raised. In Cuban culture, there's the black Cubans and white Cubans. So my mother identifies as a white Cuban. Um, I don't know if your audience has ever seen Buena Vista Social Club, but it, that directly uh, really addresses racism inside of Cuba. Um, uh, it's about a jazz, a jazz group down there. And so it's, I didn't really know what I was because I'm like, well, I'm Latin, but she's telling me I'm white. And, and then why, what I didn't realize about that is the push to identify as white was because she defined that as better. So she thought she was protecting us by, if you lean into this identity, that's a better identity, which is inadvertently racist, (laughs) you know? So I, I think the seed was planted for me since I was a little girl that something was off. I didn't, I didn't like how I was being told to tell the world who I was. Wow. I can imagine too, especially, you know, Cuban, Portuguese, right? Uh, In one of our earlier episodes, we had uh, Rebecca Nunez, who's the CEO of a company, an advertising uh, agency. And she talked about, you know, we we spoke a little bit on it about colorism um, within not just the black community, but also the Latinx community as well, how big that is. So 
why is this topic important to you, right? Let, 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 let me just paint a picture here. You, you have been, you, you look white. You identify based on your parents as white. You can walk into any place. You can pretty much do whatever you want to do. You know what I mean? Within a, from a racial standpoint, in terms of a privilege standpoint, why is this topic important to you? Well, for two reasons. I, I've witnessed since Black Lives Matter movement really took off that this white fragility of realizing like that oversensitivity like was not necessary. If we, if we honor and know who we are, we can accept that our starting place has certain advantages. And uh, in the racial realm, I have some advantages by passing as white. And I... I realized, you know, I had this moment in Jersey City. This is going to make me emotional when it really, really hit me that I had to be a part of the solution. It was raining and there was a black gentleman and me and we were running toward the PATH train in Jersey City and we both had dark colored hoodies and we wanted to avoid the rain by getting onto the train as quickly as we could. We both kind of flipped up our hoodies and we're both like running toward the entrance of the train and a cop stopped the young black man and I got on the train. And I had that moment where I thought, this is it. This is white privilege. I'm not going to be late for work. And that young man is simply because he's black. And that bothered me to my core. Something as simple as that. We're literally just running for the train. Mm -hmm. And he seemed to be a threat. And it, it was the first time I observed and actually witnessed my, me in my privilege without it being malicious, without it being overt. There wasn't anything in my actual actions that was racist. But what I realized is if I defended that, like, oh no, he just got stopped because he was the random guy on the right side of the, come on. You know what I mean? Like he was the one in close proximity to the cop. You know, like when people say ignorant stuff like that, I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm a white chick. Like, that's why I'm not late for work. Like, can we not for a second stop pretending? And so, mm. so that, that was part of it is I realized like I'm one of those people that I'm not hypersensitive. So I could have this conversation because I, I felt like I was, I didn't have the fragility part of my white privilege. I was willing to be like, yeah. I'm lucky in this area of my life. I'm also like grew up as a welfare foster kid. Like there are other advantages and that I did not have, you know, there, are, I understand in the world that there are, you know, black people that grew up in very abundant environments. And that wasn't my experience, but like, I don't need to give this list of one upping who has more advantages. And I felt like the world mm -hmm. needed to know that we can all hold the space for each other and know that our journeys are very different. Um, and that's, I also the other reason this was really important to me is as, as a queer woman, I've been marginalized for very different reasons. I know it's not the same thing, but I, it bothered me to see that any marginalized community could marginalize another community that felt like I felt hypersensitive just to that principle. And I thought mm. there's a Benjamin Franklin quote that I'm going to absolutely butcher, but it's something to the effect of, like the justice isn't served until the people who are not affected are just as enraged as the people who are. And mm -hmm. wow. 
And I have, as I've witnessed that just in sort of studying history, it's very true until the people who are not directly affected participate in the solution, like things don't change. Like when I go to gay rights marches in a predominantly gay neighborhood where no, I'm like, nothing's, everybody's already on board here at the gay rights rally. We, we in gay Mecca, you know what I mean? So it's just like, we're not reaching any communities by, and so that was the other reason I wanted um, to participate. But then lastly, I'll say this. I went to a Black Lives Matter rally where I was with another white friend Mm -hmm. who kept raising her hand. And I had that moment where I was like, girl, this is where we're the allies. They're glad we're here. Hold up the signs and shut your pie hole. (laughs) Like, this is not our platform, (laughs) you know? And so there was an opportunity for me to also speak to non-black people to say like, we are here to hold this lovingly, hold the space, but we also have to be humble enough. And that's part of the white privilege is this entitlement that everybody wants to hear our voice. And I'm like, we, Mm -hmm. we need to just be here to know, like, we've got you, we support you, but this is not, we're, we're holding this platform for you. We're not navigating this platform for you, you know? Right, right, right. I mean, listen, I got it. You, you just said a whole other Everything you said in that last, you know, minute or two could be separate podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. You went from privilege, which I want to ask you about. You went to, you know, the, 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 the kid getting, uh, uh, stopped and you weren't able to go there. You went to queer, you went to welfare foster, (laughs) you went to a lot of different things, right? Which is awesome. And then you went to, Hey, this ain't our platform. This is just for us to be here and listen and learn, right? Which is all great. Let's back up a little bit because I do want to dive into some of this, some of the stuff you just talked about before we go into the non-race, I'm not racist versus anti-racism. So you talked about privilege, right? When did you figure out that you had uh, privilege as being, you know, a white person? Well, when I found out that my family from Cuba immigrated all the way, basically from Miami up to Massachusetts, and then their kids didn't find out they were Cuban till 16, I was like, that is white privilege. You basically (laughs) hid as a different race for 16 years. Like there's no way, Tony, that you would find out you were black when you were 16. You know what I mean? Maybe, uh, you know, I don't think so here in the United States. No. (laughs) Right. But, um, you know, maybe, but no, excellent point. You make an excellent point. So, yeah, I, de- I definitely think that, that I, I, did I answer that question entirely? I feel like, okay. no, you answered it. I was just, <laughs> I was kind of stunned because the way you threw it back at me, I was like, you're right. I wouldn't have <laughs> you know, so you're hundred percent right. Let me ask you this. So, so, and that's a great reflection on, on you. A lot of people are in that same predicament. And they don't think they have privilege, right? We hear, I grew up with nothing. That's why I wanted to back up to the uh, foster welfare thing. Tell us a little bit about that when you said, you know, I'm from a foster welfare situation. Well, I lived with my um, biological mother and my sisters and uh, until I was 14. I went into the system my freshman year in high school. And I mean, that's a whole other convolute. In fact, my solo theater performance is about my journey through the foster care system and entering it as a teenager. Because um, that's part of mm-hmm. why our system is so broken is when you're a teenager, you're already scary and damaged and the system is really not in alignment to elevate those kind of kids. It's like we, we support th- these babies to be adopted, but once you're a teenager, they kind of give up on you. So that's sort of my my journey through that that system is that 
I did grow up in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. I had a lot of privilege. And then it was like this shell shock when um, there was just a lot of things happening in in my home that uh, my my mother was not really in a, a position to be able to hold on to us in that window. And I'm, I'm sort of being mm-hmm. cryptic here, but I also want to like honor her. No, and I get it. I get it. And I appreciate you yeah. sharing. I, I totally um, get it. So yeah, but what what was interesting is when I got into the foster system, that was my nickname by some of the girls in the home. They called me privileged, and they they called that was their nickname. Oh, privileged Miss Cape Cod. They would push me around. I was harassed. I was bullied. I had this one girl in the middle of the night burned me with cigarettes on my back and called me privileged. So I've also experienced my privilege be the contributing factor to how I was abused. And by my peers, these were my other foster siblings in this one home. So I think that's also my pull to this is that we still have a story, even though we experience that privilege. Cause in that, in that circumstance, my privilege did not help me. It made me so other in that circumstance that it like elevated how I was treated because they resented me for it for, but I mean, we were children, we were all children, but, um, you know, so I just thought, I think sometimes this whole issue around racism, it's not always malice. And that's why we have to have these conversations. Sometimes it very much is, but I don't think a hundred percent of the time it's so much of it is systemic or generational, or we have PTSD from other traumas in our lives. I think these young girls that experienced so much trauma, like that was their only way of, of feeling that their otherness made them more important. And so I kind of became the punching bag for that. And I, I forgive them. And, you know, I'm a woman in my forties now. It's been many, many, many years. I've done a lot of healing around it, but I, I realized like that was their own stuff. And like, that's, that is how we heal is that we do address it. We do say this behavior isn't acceptable anymore, but we also can forgive simultaneously. Like both things can exist. Got it. Got it. And so, you know, you've gone through a lot. You've, you know, and I'm just, just based on what you've chatted about here thus far. And some of the stuff that you've gone through, you could go the other way Mm -hmm. to be fair. You could, you know, being in that foster home and being called privilege and I would imagine these are kids of, you know, kids mm-hmm. of color who were calling you that. You could easily said, you know what? They treated me wrong, so I don't like none of them. <laughs> All right. I'm going to stay away from people of color because of my experience with them as a kid was very hurtful. Um, you know, I, it was a tough time in my life. And, and you know, you could have gone to this in this direction, but you're looking at it from another direction. And why is that? Well, um, I think it's a, f- a few things. Um, the, the, the girls, for clarity, yes, the girls were all non-white, but some of them were other Latinas and it was, they were, but they were Spanish speaking Latinas. So that's where the discrimination internally in my own community happens a lot. But one of the reasons I, I feel like now, when I look back in retrospect, I think when you are raised and taught that you're, you're other, it can inadvertently create an apathy. And it made sense to me why they were angry, you know, like when you are so unseen and invisible, like your starting place is not going to be the understanding of other people's positions. Like I can't imagine you would develop a really centered, uh, you know, empathetic position. Like we have to think what our foundation is. So even though there was so much of that behavior that I don't think is okay. I'm like, the larger problem is not that individual. They're also sort of conduits of their own knowing, just like some of the accidental racist things I've said in the last 40 years, 
not at all maliciously, just either came from what I was raised, how I was raised. I mean, I I look back to being a young girl and watching cops. We briefly spoke about this, but I didn't know. Like I would sit with popcorn and watch black bodies be thrown to the ground. And I thought it was entertainment after school because my mother put it on the TV. And then my other white friends came over and we're all watching black people be, you know, arrested. And I'm like, when I look back, I am so disgusted by that behavior that I even, but there was this switch in me where I was like, it grossed me out at a certain point. I can't tell you definitively what that switch was, but I, at some point in my life, I knew it was wrong. And I, but I also, I didn't seek it out. I didn't, you know what I mean? Like, so when I look back to that behavior that was sort of taught as a human in the world, one of the things I've always tried to do is not overanalyze a position that I cannot relate to. And I think sometimes that is sort of part of white privilege. This, we believe that we have a definitive opinion or expertise around every subject and we become unteachable. And I think because our voices have always mattered, we, um, we can't accept that there are things that we don't understand. And so part of it mm-hmm. was that, like, I didn't, there was something that I didn't understand, you know? And even from witnessing, like, one of the young girls in my foster home, like, put a Band-Aid on, you know? And the Band-Aids are, their skin tone, they're, they're white. The actual Band-Aids are supposed to be skin tone. And I'm thinking, wow, as as a black person, like you just cut your finger and you are reminded you are other because there's not even a bandaid that can mm. cover your skin. That is the same thing. Crayola used to have crayons and the beige crayon was called skin tone. And I'm like, what, when you buy bras, I'm sorry, not to, but it's the same thing. Like you would buy any beige colored bra was called a skin tone. I'm right, like, what right. is happening? You know, when it wasn't until later right. in my life that I noticed just these little things were constantly reminding people that they were other. And um my otherness didn't come until a little later. So it wasn't like part of my foundation, you know, like even coming out, yes, I was aware of my otherness, but I was able to like center myself and who I was first before I found out that I was other, if that makes sense. Right. 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 Let me, so all that you've been through, Right. Like, which I love. I, I, I didn't know I was Cuban until I was 16. Um, did you ever in all the things that you saw and, in, 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 you know, with the cops TV show and, and all these other things that you talked about, did you ever say to yourself, I'm not a racist? Or did you say that to anybody else? I'm not a racist. I have. I have. You know, I have a uh, I. A bit of a confession of the time that I used that, but I don't know if I'm being defensive or not defensive. There was a time in when I was in Jersey City and I was on a bus and this mm-hmm. this group of teenage boys jumped in front of the bus, not in a crosswalk. And the bus, the, the bus driver just slammed on his brakes. I All the stuff I was reading, all the stuff out of my backpack went underneath the seats of the bus. The whole bus like plummeted forward And it was just sort of this entitled, like the crosswalk was like three feet away. They could have used the crosswalk, but it was like this statement and everybody screamed on the bus. And all I said was effing kids. That's all I said. I didn't even see who was in the crosswalk. I didn't even, I just knew that they were kids, you know? And, Mm -hmm. um, 
a woman on the bus said, you're being racist because it was a group of black kids. And I said, I'm not racist. Mm -hmm. And I, I remember walking away from that situation. I still don't know if I know how to unpack that situation because I'm, you know, I've also been in a car accident where a black gentleman hit me. And when I got pissed, I was like, you asshole. I didn't know who hit me until I got out of the car. So I'm like, are those racist right. moments or do I automatically get be acute? Be, I become accused of being racist simply when I find out who the person is that did the thing. So that has always right. bothered me. Like not is everything mm-hmm. racism? Like I was just annoyed that my entire backpack was on the floor of the bus. I wasn't trying to attack anybody's character, but because I was white and I got annoyed, I got accused of being racist in that moment. Let me ask you this. So I'm going to play a quick little clip. So number one, thanks for sharing that, right? I'm going to play a quick little clip and I want to get your thoughts on it. Of the most freeing thing that white people can do, or actually any human being on the planet could do right now, is to just say, of course I'm racist. Of course I'm racist. If you grew up in a house that spoke French and you, as a baby, just started laying in your crib, listening to people speak French over you, you wouldn't have to do anything to start gaining uh, proficiency in the French language. You would just speak it because that's what's being spoken around you. Our society speaks racism. It has spoken racism since we were born. Of course you are racist. Of course. The idea that somehow this blanket of ideas has fallen on everyone's head except for yours <laughs> is magical thinking. It's And it's you. So that's from CBS News. Um, and it was, uh, uh, um, you know, uh, clip they did a a, a sit down they did about anti-racism right and what she's saying is that we're all racist uh because at the end of the day we live in a racist society okay and you know the first thing that we need to uh um you know uh we need to be able to commit to and, and look in the mirror and say i am racist and, you know, I love the way she first started white people. And she said, no, all people need to say this because in the, the day I know, you know, black people have had problems with, you know, in certain parts of the country with Korean people. All right. I know, you know, certain uh, 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 Latinx groups have certain problems with other uh, uh, Hispanic Latinx groups. I know we all have racist tendencies. So what's your thoughts on that? I love that clip. And I think as much as I'm not proud to articulate that sentence, I agree with it. I, I am racist and I, and I hate that. That's why I'm here having this conversation with you. And for me, when I say anti-racism, it's that there's something that needs a reversal, right? That's, that is the point Mm. of why I'm trying to be anti-racist because racism has inadvertently been a part of my experience. I don't think I've ever been maliciously overtly racist, but I agree. It's taught in our society, even from our education system. Like there was a lot of things I didn't, I didn't know about what black people had experienced. I honestly, my entire childhood, I didn't even know that there were like massive communities of wealthy black people. Like that's racist. No one taught me those human beings walked the planet. Like do you know what I'm saying? So there was this weird assumption, mm-hmm. but I thought it was like with me because Latin people are also taught we're always broke. So I'm like, yeah, brown and black people, we're all broke. I made this weird inadvertent like affirmation that brown and black people are always broke. Like all of those little things have, have planted these seeds like, wow, racism sits in me too. 
you know? It sits in all of us it, because to the things that you just said that you were talk, taught, taught as a young kid, you know, we were taught the same thing. Right. And, you know, there wasn't a lot of wealthy black people or only, you know, black people in the movies would be pimps and hustlers and, and, and slaves. You didn't see black doctors. You didn't see black politicians. You know, now you do. But not when I was growing up. Right. So when you grow up, when we all grow up in a society, um, regardless of where you are. And and as much as, as we may think we're not racist, all right, because, you know, of, you know, how we define it. At the end of the day, we all have racist tendencies in us, every human being. And, I you know, and, and white black people quick say white people are racist. And I'm, and guess what? I'm, I'm not disagreeing with that. Right. But black people can be racist, too. Right. Cuban people can be racist. People of Indian descent can be racist. Every group can be racist. So when we say I'm not racist, we're basically saying, you know, we're not being honest with ourselves, right? Because of, you know, words, paint pictures. I'm going to play another really quick clip to, to expound on this some more. Play clip number two. Hey, saying I'm not a racist and being anti-racist is like two different things. When most people think of racism, they think of, you know, let's say what happened to George Floyd or they think of the KKK or they think of slavery. And when that is kind of your perception, it's very easy to say, well, I would never do that. I would never do that awful thing, which is valid, but it's more nuanced than that. Someone saying like, I'm not a racist doesn't help the problem. Simply saying I'm not doing that does not save somebody's life. It's like witnessing someone getting jumped and being like, hey, I didn't jump him. It's like, but you also just stood there while he or she got jumped and being an anti-racist is like one getting involved and being like, break it up, stop this. And two speaking out to make sure it never happens again. What's your thoughts on that, Renee? I love that clip. You know, this is why I'm participating in this movement because it was, it was a distinction. I, I, I'll tell you another little anecdote of where I felt that I actively was a part of the solution for the first time where I'm an, I'm an Uber driver on the side. And, um, there was a gentleman, he had his ear pods in a black gentleman in the back of my car. And it was like July 4th. And the cops were just doing like the re- routine checkpoint, stopping everybody thing. And when I pulled up, um, the cop asked me in the nicest way, are you okay? And I had that moment where I thought, why wouldn't I be okay? Because I have a black passenger who's not even paying attention to me. (laughs) You know what I mean? He's like, he's black. He's not a threat. And it was the first time I had said to the cop, I said, sir, that was racist. Why wouldn't I be okay? He's, he's black, not dangerous. And it was the first time I had said it out loud. And then I got scared of how the cop would react to me. And it was just this moment where I don't know why I felt pulled to actually speak out, but I'm like, because I am a white woman, I can say this directly to a white cop's face. And this is how mm-hmm. I can take my privilege and participate in the solution. That man needed to know that even though he seemed like he was nicely checking up on me to see if I was okay, that was a racist statement to think that I was mm-hmm. in trouble. And I had never felt compelled to say, but I had been participating in this conversation with friends. And I think that's kind of the seed had been planted for me to be a part of that conversation. And that was the first time in my life where I'm like, oh, this is anti-racism. This is an example of it. 
because I actually said something in a very small way. I'm not saying I'm some hero here, but it was the first time that I felt cognizant of these little, just like there are microaggressions uh, uh, for racism, like these little things that we can do that they don't necessarily need to be marches down the street where we can just call people out on this. That's when we are part of the solution. And um, I, but I also want to do more than, than just that, you know, I don't want to be the person that's like, oh, mm-hmm. I had this one spirit, you know, check that box. I got it. <laughs> you know what I mean? I understand it's a, it's, it's a much larger conversation. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm a nanny. I work for a, a wealthy white family. There, there are times where I will hear them say stuff where I have to like recalibrate them, open their eyes. Like that's part of it where I'm like, I, these young white boys need to grow up like being aware of this and not that I can be like the this beacon of knowledge all the time but whenever I hear them say anything like I make sure that they know that they are being racist you know and so that that dialogue Mm -hmm. stops between their peers and the bullying and then behind the scenes we don't have this next generation like reproducing all of this and right right um but I really liked that I, I really liked that gentleman's statement of like an anti-racist person is they're educating themselves. You know what I mean? About these racial issues and challenging these discriminate discriminatory policies and, and working toward an actual solution. Like I listened, I've listened to your podcast. I listened to a whole podcast about reparations because I had heard the term thrown around and I had that moment where I thought, you know what? I don't know a lot about this discussion. I knew generally about the discussion, but I was like, I don't feel like if somebody came up to me today and was like, what's your opinion on reparations? I could participate in that conversation. So I listened to this podcast. I learned so much, you know, and it like really got that, the wheel spinning. And then I was on a hike with my right friend who was like, reparations should just be, give them money for education. And I was, oh my God, for like six miles, I was like (laughs) reiterating that podcast. And I was just so upset about, because finally I understood, like I had been educated enough to fight against the discussion. And, um, Mm -hmm. and I thought I can't be a part of the solution if I'm in my little like echo chamber. So I feel like I'm in a place in my life where a lot of it is I'm a sponge and I'm just educating myself about what I didn't know. And, um, Mm -hmm. but I, but I think that's awesome. I think that's sorry about that, but I think that's awesome that, you know, and that's the distinction between the two, right. Is saying I'm not a racist is basically not doing anything right versus anti-racism is getting involved. Right. And that's the example that you provided here. Right. Is that with the cop who pulled you over when you were as an Uber driver, pulled you over and says, Hey, are you okay? Because you had a black passenger. You could have easily just said, yeah, I'm okay. And left it at that. Right. But you took it to the next step. You made him aware like, Hey, He's not a criminal. Just because he's black and I'm white doesn't mean that he's doing anything, right? And a lot of times we don't do that. We don't we don't take it. We just want to say, I'm not a racist. And I love the example my friend gave in that clip. He's like, you're seeing somebody get jumped, but you're basically saying, well, I didn't jump him. <laughs> so, you know, I'm not. Versus saying, hey, stop that. Break up that fight. Right. And, and trying to not make it happen again. So I love the I love you sharing your 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 experience with that. 
<laughs> Can I add something? Mm-hmm. I had a I had a, a a situation where I was having lunch and a lady struck a conversation with me and she was looking at me kind of funny and she starts talking to me. Long story short, I tell her that you know I, I oh you you look familiar. You on a television show and like oh yeah I am. Oh are you on this this show? I'm like oh yeah I am. And then she asked me about my background and I told her I was Puerto Rican. And she's like, oh, and you're successful? <laughs> I'm like, that's yeah. racist. <laughs> she's like, no, it's not. Like, even when you present it to some people, sometimes there's they're such in denial that they're yeah, racist. Yeah, and it comes out. They don't even know what they're saying. It comes out in these niceties. I experienced this recently, too, as a nanny, because I I personally drive a 2019 Ford Fiesta, and I normally drive the kids around with it. But when I have these little white children in my car... That, you know, they're brunette. So they, they could be mine. I get out of, I get out of the car in a parking lot. These were, this was two weeks apart. And this woman who was parking next to me is like, Oh, your kids are so cute. And I was like, uh, th- and you know, I don't have time to have the cold conversation. So I just say thank you and move on with my life. A week later, sometimes I drive my boss's car, which is like a spaceship. It's this like BMW thing. Like it yells at you when you leave your phone in the car. It like, when I sit in the, when my boss drives it, it there's like a programming for all the sitting and the re- seating in the rear view mirrors. When I sit in it, it's like programmed to my butt and the whole thing moves and the rear view mirrors adjust. Like this car is crazy. So at any rate, I'm borrowing his car that day and I go into a Whole Foods parking lot. I get out of this fancy BMW with these two white kids and Cole, uh, one of the little boys, sorry, he, he runs uh, sort of around the car and this, the, this woman says to me, Oh, don't, don't run. Listen to your nanny. And I had that moment where I'm like, mm. oh, because I'm a brown woman getting out of a fancy BMW, I must be the help. And when I got out mm-hmm. of the Ford Fiesta, mm-hmm. they assumed the same child was mine. And I'm like, that's racist. That's that's racist, right? Like those little things it's so where it's true. like the woman was just like making sure that the boy didn't run off. And it doesn't, it seems so innocuous, but it's those moments where I realized like, I not only am I part of the anti-racist conversation. Sometimes I have these moments, even as a Latina, where I am discriminated against in these little subtle ways. And um, right. yeah, it's really amazing because it's not; it doesn't seem unkind when people are being racist every time. Exactly. And look, at the end of the day, we know it's all right. ignorance, right? And and those things can be fixed. Okay, so we so the the key is it's like uh, I learned this a long time ago. Not you know you know somebody who is alcoholic. Okay, when are they on their way to being cured? When they say I'm an alcoholic, (laughs) all right, you're halfway there. Then right, first you have to admit that you have a Mm -hmm. problem, right? So it's okay to say, hey, you know what? Yes, I have some racist tendencies. There's things I don't know. I may think certain things because I saw it on cops or I, I you know, I, I, I read it in a book or my or grandma Jones told me that these people act this way. So that's what I believe. So, yes, we have those tendencies. But once you say you get away from I'm not a racist versus yes, I am. However, I can get better and I want to move to anti-racism, you know, then we're on our way to becoming a better country, a better group of people. And we can all now see people for who they are versus what we think they are. I want to play one final clip 
to this point, and I want to get your thoughts on it. Play uh, uh, Abram. I think in order to define anti-racist, I must talk about the more popular term, not racist, Mm -hmm. which stems from the, the phrase, I am not racist, which stems from when anyone in this society is charged with being racist, their response is, I'm not racist. Whether that person is from the far right or far left, right. you know, across the ideological board, when, when people are charged with saying and doing something that's racist, their response is, I'm not racist. Or, or some say, I can't be racist. Mm-hmm. I can't be racist because I'm a person of color, mm-hmm. because I'm a liberal, because I have a black uh, friend, uh, friend yeah. so on and so forth. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and, and so historically, the phrase not racist, the identity of not racist has been expressed by eugenicists, mm. has been expressed by Jim Crow segregationists, has been expressed by white nationalists, even white nationalists who are writing a manifesto mm-hmm. to then go and shoot at Dozens of people at a Walmart in El Paso, Texas, right in their manifesto, I'm not racist. So think about that. What's your thoughts to that? I mean, it's it's poignant. And I think there's a passivity to not being racist. You know, like it's just you're not somebody's not racist is not overtly participating in racist behaviors, but they're not doing anything to actually dismantle racism. And I think mm-hmm. any any defense defensive response to any position usually means you are that thing, including like being an alcoholic. Like if you're drinking a glass of wine, you're just a regular person. Someone's like, what are you drinking? But if you're like, I'm not drinking and I didn't I didn't drink yesterday. I, this is the first drink I've had this week. Like blah, 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 blah. you know, like if you start to get defensive, you're probably an alcoholic. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> Flat out. So Flat out. it's the same sort of thing. I'm like, if you have just listed off all the black friends that you have, you're really racist. <laughs> it's, it, it's, look, and I I love what he was saying too, because think about it. And I every every time I listen to that clip, I start laughing. He was like, look. White nationalists say, I'm not racist. People, you know, writing manifestos about to go shoot up a Walmart with a bunch of people of color. And they're saying, I'm not racist. Right. So it doesn't matter. We all say it. Right. But our actions doesn't speak that. So we got to get out of that. We are all racist. I love what you just got finished saying. If you <laughs> love the the alcohol, the, 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 you know, I got five black friends. When you start going there. Yeah. Right. But we all do it. So. Talk to me a little bit. Let's expand on the anti-racism part, right? You know, how do people change? How do they make that pivot from, you know, now I understand, hopefully I understand, that we all have racist tendencies, right? And I can look in the mirror and I can be okay with that. Uh, How do I make that? How do people make that pivot in terms of, First acknowledging and then moving to the anti-racism side, which is action and stuff to that nature. Well, I think being anti-racist is a proactive stance. 
But I also will say that I think there's a level of education that has to happen. And for, in my experience, um, I, I don't know that you can entirely participate in the solution without an education around what is going on. So I do believe that behaviors like listening to podcasts, participating in these conversations with your friends, educating yourself about the history around systemic racism, it allows you to then participate in the, the conversation in an educated way. Um, and mm-hmm. then you're able to challenge discriminatory policies. But if you don't know what the discriminatory policy is, how can you be a part of that solution? So I do think there is a window in which we have to be able to like be a sponge before we can actually go out there. Because I think sometimes it's a mistake that young people make. They make rash decisions around certain things that are uneducated that can sometimes participate mm-hmm. in the problem. Um, like, mm-hmm. for example, like that young white girl that went to the Black Lives Matter, like her heart was in the right place. Like she was so upset, but she didn't, she hadn't listened to enough discussions around the fact that that wasn't our platform. There was a level of ignorance in which she was so proactive that I think mm-hmm. we've, we've got to listen. We have to, we have to have a, a book on our nightstand that's not just about our personal experience and hearing about other things that happen in the world. And, I, but I also feel like people can disillusion themselves, like changing your profile picture on Instagram to black lives matter doesn't make you anti-racist. That just means you change your profile Mm -hmm. picture. (laughs) Like, you know what I mean? So it's stuff like that where I, uh, people tell me they're like, yeah, but like, I don't even have my face up there. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is not. (laughs) So, so, so number one, educate educate themselves, themselves, right? That's what you're saying. Educate. Number two, you know, and again, some people may want to go out and and try to change a policy. Some people may not, right? So what can they do just in their own sphere, their own, well, how can they influence or make a, a change in their own neighborhood or their, with their friends or family? What would you suggest? I think these smaller discussions, you know, I sh- I've shared some examples in my experience because I think that's the nature of changing life in general. Like sometimes you're a single mom that's imparting wisdom to one individual child. Other times you're a famous artist that has a massive platform that's reaching millions, but the intention is still the same. Mm-hmm. And we don't all need to have a massive platform to be a part of the solution in mm-hmm. any area. So I think having these, these conversations, to your point, if somebody says something that's racist, lovingly educating people. But for me, I think the other thing about the shift is coming from a place of love. I think Mm. one of the reasons why these conversations are hard to have is because there can be an attack and, and people do not change from shame. And I've learned this in my life. Like if you, if you make somebody wrong first, that's how you lead in. You're a horrible person. You shouldn't have done this. And then you're like, so by the way, do you want to participate in the solution? Like if you talk to a small child, like our brains, we're we're not built that way to change from shame. So I think we have to find a way to have this discussion to be like, look, these are these little racist things that we all have. And like, let's, can we recalibrate as a community? And so yeah, I think that's sometimes what is missing in the conversation is can we sit in a room with somebody who's in conflict with our opinion and love them into the solution? Love it. Matter of fact, you just so I want to hear your thoughts after this final clip. The best way to get over stuff is to talk about it. This stuff will never change until people become comfortable having these uncomfortable conversations. 
on both sides, both sides. I mean, you have, they're not comfortable conversations. I mean, I've had to have conversations with people in my family and it's, and I'm in an interracial relationship and, you know, having the conversation is not the easiest thing to do, but you have to do it. And that's basically what you're saying, right? Is that we need to come together and just have these conversations and don't judge people, love them through it, right? Love them through it. I, you know, there's things, you know, as much as people think, um, you know, I'm the, the host of a black executive perspective podcast and we talk about race. I'm not a race expert. Okay. I've made a ton of mistakes uh, and probably will still make a ton of mistakes. Okay. I'm here to put a platform together so we can come together and have conversations so I can learn from a Renee Santos. I can learn from all my guests on here. I've learned from people just in general on a thousand things that I knew nothing of. I've misspoke. I've said things that people are like, Oh my God. I remember, I'll tell you a really quick thing. Um, this I was working at his company and we were doing some, um, uh, we were putting together, uh, a DEI thing. And I sent, uh, the guy in charge of DEI, I sent him an email and said, Hey man, I want to get together so we can have a quick powwow. Okay. And then he emailed me back and said, Tony, by the way, just so you know, powwow he's a, is a microaggression all right and he sent me a list of the different microaggression terms i didn't know okay i had no clue okay and i said hey man thank you for sending that to me educate me so we're going to that's going to happen we're going to make mistakes the only way that we're able to get past them is to have uncomfortable conversations be willing to learn to your point Right. And then fight racism. In other words, be anti-racist. So if you hear something or you see something, try to educate the person with love versus beating them over their head and be an active participant in terms of trying to change things. Yeah, I, abs I absolutely agree with that. I think we have to challenge our own biases in order to to create this equitable society. But in order to do that, we have to ask these tough questions and we have to be willing to be wrong and, or yeah, ask something as simple as what you asked with the powwow example. I, I had a conversation. I have a friend, Brian, who's from Jamaica and he hates when people say African-American. He's like, we're not all from Africa. Like my family was born and raised in Jamaica. And, and I asked him, I said, I've been taught that like, just saying this, a black person, that's ignorant, you know? So I, I was taught the not racist thing to do is to say African-American. It was politically correct. But then it hit me that I'm like, here's my black friend that's not African. Like, ah, what do I say? So I just asked him, I'm like, well, what is the appropriate, can I say as a white person this book, or if I'm describing somebody, my acting, I have an acting partner, a scene partner. And I'm like, can I say, when they're like, who's your scene partner? And I'm like, um, and there's a few different guys in class and I'm like, but there's only one black guy in class. I'm like the, the, the tall black guy, handsome, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, Jason's his name, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just, I'm just describing him to place like, so people know who my scene partner is, but I would get nervous, right? right. I'm like, can I say my black scene partner, Jason, or am I racist by making that statement? You right. know, so it's those kind of conversations where I asked my Jamaican friend, I'm like, am I allowed to say that? And not a lot of people would even ask that question, like what is appropriate right. in a very simple conversation like that. And I'm like, we have to be willing to ask even things like that. You know, Totally agree. Totally agree. Final thoughts. What do you want to leave the audience here, Renee? 
I want to leave the audience with, I think it is, it is important to be interested in the things that don't directly affect us because ultimately it all affects us. Like not to sound cliche, we are the human race and I, we must look for our, our similarities and not our differences to really change the world. And there's, I think we can honor both our separatism and our collectivity by having these conversations. And I came on here today because I wanted, I want to be a part of the solution and whatever way that is of being service, being of service to the larger group. But I think ultimately when we are of service to others, we elevate our own consciousness. So it ends up being mutually beneficial. Well, guess what? You are part of the solution. We really, really excited. I'm so thankful that you came here today to talk about this topic, which is a difficult topic. Um, but you made it very easy to talk about. And, you know, one of the big things is, is that, you know, you used yourself as an example. Okay. And a lot of times we're afraid to do that. So Renee Santos, I want to thank you a lot. You know, you're just a great human being. You love your fellow human being. And if we, if hopefully this podcast or you're appearing on this podcast today touches somebody where they can basically, you know, learn from, from this and move forward. So thanks a lot. I love you a lot. And Thank obviously, you, as you. we want okay. you to come back on at some point so we can, you know, talk about some other topics as well. I would love that. Thank you, Tony. Have an Thank awesome you. day. Thank I appreciate you. you. So hopefully today you, you enjoyed you know, Renee Santos talking about the distinction between non-racist and being anti-racist. Renee did a really, really good job in terms of sharing her own experiences, you know, uh, how she grew up and some of the things that she went through and how she had to, you know, uh, uh, identify, learn her own identity. And, you know, when it came to race, more importantly, she had to look in the mirror and and really do a self self-assessment in terms of you know, where she fits into the whole ecosystem when it comes to race. And then more importantly, how she could be uh, change her, her mindset in terms of being anti-racist. So a couple of things here that I took out of this. Number one, listen, you may disagree with what we talked about today. We're all racist. We all we all have some type of racist, racist tendency. So we can say we're not racist and we got this friend, that friend. But at the end of the day, we have some type of racist idea or pushback against some type of group. So first, we got to admit that. Then number two, as Renee talked about, we have to sit. Once we admit that, we have to educate ourselves and be willing to be able to sit back and listen and learn from other human uh, other human beings and get uncomfortable in terms of being able to listen and then more importantly, be able to put things into action to be a better human being. And then finally, being complicit is no longer uh, 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 an option here, right? Either you are sitting on the fence or you're actively participating in terms of trying to change the narrative and trying to become part of the solution. So anti-racism is about getting involved. Yes. Can you write your congressman? Absolutely. Can you do a lot of these things? Yes. But you don't even have to go that far. You can just tell grandma, grandma, you can't say that at the Thanksgiving table about other people. You can see somebody else being bullied or your friends at work who are saying racist jokes. You just, Hey, guys, don't do that. That's not right. Just those little bitty things make 
things a lot better for all of us. And that's how you be, you come from I'm not being a racist to being anti-racist. So today's tidbit, <clears throat> race and racism is a reality that so many of us grow up learning just to deal with. But if we ever hope to move past it, it can't just be people of color to deal with it. It's up to all of us, black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Jewish, everyone, no matter how well-meaning we think we might be, to do the honest, uncomfortable work of rooting it out. And that's by Michelle Obama. So hope you enjoy this episode of A Black Executive Perspective. Give us a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Let us know how you like it. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. You can follow A Black Executive Perspective on all our social platforms, Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, TikTok, at Tony Tidbit BEP. For my guest, Renee Santos, Double A, who's our executive producer, I'm Tony Tidbit. We talked about it, and we're out. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Tony Tidbit, a Black Executive Perspective, and for joining in today's conversation. With every story we share, every conversation we foster, and every barrier we address, we can ignite the sparks that bring about lasting change. And this carries us one step closer to transforming the face of corporate America. If today's episode resonated with you, consider subscribing and leaving us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Share this episode with your circle, and with your support, we can reach more people and tell more stories.